Please turn to Isaiah chapter 50. We're going to look particularly at verse 10, but in the context of the entire chapter of Isaiah chapter 50. Verse 10 reads this way, Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. This is a word to children of God that are in darkness, weariness, and they are weary for a very particular reason. Verse 4 says that the weariness is uh, very real, and the context gives the truth that this weariness on the part of the faithful servant of God is because of his sin. It's because he has not walked in the way of the Lord. Verse 1 says that uh, I've not done these things. I've not caused you to be weary because I was in need. God said, I didn't sell you in order to uh, increase my bank account. Some of us that have a lot of extra stuff lying around that needs to be dealt with employ Craigslist and uh, sell things and the junk goes down and the bank account goes up. And God said Israel to Israel, to his people, I've judged you and you're weary. But I didn't do this because I needed money in the bank. And I didn't do it because I needed to clear out clutter. I want you to understand that your weariness and your situation that looks desperate is the result of your actions. So he makes that very clear to them. But he has a word for them. The, 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 the truth that the weariness that we experience is the result of our own sin. Sometimes we stop there. And we bemoan, oh, I am weary and undone. Woe is me. And I just can't fill in the blank. I am no good. I'm poor, weak, and worthless. And in a sense, it's necessary that we understand that. But the problem is, is when we stop there, and when that becomes the end of our focus, and we don't hear in faith the Word of God to those of us that are weary because of our sinfulness. God wants us to go beyond that as a people and as individuals. God said to the people of Israel as his people in this same book of Isaiah in chapter 9 and verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Now, blessed be the Lord. 
we now know what that prophecy referred to. Because the Lord Jesus himself quoted this as being fulfilled in him. Israel, for a long period of time, as a people, had walked in darkness, weary, groping about. You ever get up at night and uh, it's really dark and you need to maybe go to the restroom and you walk to where you think you should be going and you stump your toe or bump your head? Now, maybe some of you are not as clumsy as I am, but I have to confess that I have done that kind of thing. I'm, I'm walking in darkness and I'm disoriented. And Israel was a people like that. As a nation, they were not walking in light. They were at, the, the, the Old Testament in a lot of ways. Now, you have to understand that imagery has its limitations. So I'm not saying that there was no light at all, that in a, in a real sense, the overall characteristic of the Mosaic Age was that Israel walked in darkness. They were walking in shadows. And the coming of Christ brought light to that people. It was like the sun rising in the morning. And this is the context for Paul saying things like he said in Romans when he said the night is far spent and the day is at hand. He was talking about the night of the mosaic darkness. And that Christ had come and the sun had started to come up and the day of Messiah's kingdom, the light of his kingdom, had already risen. It was almost daytime when Paul wrote that in Romans. Not fully. And I'm tempted to get off into where the prophets talk about there was a time when it was neither light nor day. Night nor day. Uh, and that was, I think, the transition that the apostles lived through. But they were looking forward to a time when Israel as a nation, as a people, would be delivered from this darkness. But there's more to it than that. And it's hard for us sometimes to identify, well, here's this people walking in darkness, and now this some people, somebody, somewhere is walking in light. Hopefully we can identify with that, but individually, individually, there is a place even today, of us walking through a time of darkness and weariness. David said in the 23rd Psalm that we love so much, he said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Micah could pen these words in Micah 7, verses 8 and 9. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, when I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him, until he plead my cause 
and execute judgment for me, he will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. A very personal plea to God. Personally, you and I face enemies. Personally, we fall. And we sit in darkness as a result. God calls us to trust in Him during those times. Trust in Him with all of our heart. Now, I'm not sure that this is a theological distinction that learned men would agree with me about. But I've tried to think a little bit about the difference between faith and trust. Obviously, there's a lot of overlap. But perhaps it's useful for us to think about it this way. Faith is me believing that something is true. Trust is me acting on it. Faith believes that God is wise and knows how to raise children. Trust is when I act on that word and use the rod of correction, as my sixth grade teacher used to say, trust is when you apply the board of education to the seed of learning. And spare not because of the crying of the child. Faith believes God is wise about raising children. Trust says, I'm going to act on that faith. I'm going to do what God says, even though my child is crying, I don't like doing it. Society tells me I should not do it, but I'm going to act in Trust and obedience to what God has said. Faith is a condition that the tightrope walker can push a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls. Trust is getting in the wheelbarrow and letting him push you across. Trust is God's remedy for our darkness and our weariness. Trust in God. We'll see this over and over again as we proceed through the sermon. Now we might say, well, what is it that would rob us of our trust in God? Let me list three things that we are often, still to this day, tempted to trust in other than to trust in God. Number one is that we are tempted to trust in other gods. Isaiah chapter 37 Verses 19 and 20, 
Isaiah wrote, They have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands. Wood and stone, therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. Now, you might think, I don't trust in other gods as far as I know. And it's um, true that we're not like Israel and um, the nations about them. Isaiah spends a lot of time saying, you guys are pretty stupid. Look what you're doing. You're going out into the woods and you're cutting down a tree that doesn't rot easily. In our part of the world, we might think about that being a cedar tree. My father always liked to cut down cedar trees of a certain size to make fence posts because they didn't rot as easily as pine and some other wood. So they would cut down these trees that resisted rotting and they would cut them up into different pieces and throw some of the pieces into the fire to warm themselves with or to cook their bread. Then they would take another piece of that same wood and carve it up and cover it with gold and bow down before it. They would go out to the streams that ran through the land and they would find smooth stones that the water running over had made smooth over years and years of, of uh, erosion. And they would bring those stones into their house and make an altar or maybe shape that stone into the stone of an image, into the um, form of an image. And they'd set it up and say, this is the God that delivered me. This is my God. How utterly ignorant that is. And we say we'd not do anything like that. We would never seek to other gods. I think that we are in danger in our culture of having other gods that are more subtle than this. For many years after the Industrial Revolution, we came to think that we could find deliverance from our woes through progress, through scientific advancement. And we began to place more and more of our trust in the works of men's hands. Do I need daily bread? I will go to the supermarket where the works of men's hands have developed a process for farming in great efficiency with fertilizers and mechanized equipment to plant and cultivate and harvest and transport and preserve. 
They've learned how to manage massive herds of milk cows. And they've got machines to milk the cows and to pasteurize and homogenize and to cart and to send and they can calculate when it will go bad and what the sale date should be and what the use date shall be. And they know down to the calorie how much energy is in every unit of milk. And if I need daily bread, I will go to Walmart and use my debit card. And buy what I need. Thank you, Lord. But I don't need your help with this. I can do this on my own. And the works of men's hands have provided this for me. Do I need healing? Is there something wrong with me physically? The Scriptures condemn people that seek the physicians before they seek the Lord. Uh, By the way, the remedy for these things is not to quit shopping at Walmart, is it? The remedy is to see that this God that's blessed us with these things And so our remedy for physical ailments is not to uh, withdraw into some cult and say, I don't believe in blood transfusions and I don't believe in going to the doctor and I don't believe in the hospitals. That's not the answer. But when we seek our daily bread with an absence of thanksgiving to God for what He has done for us, And we seek physical healing without a fundamental reliance on God to use the physicians and the things he's given us. We're trusting. We have the potential to be trusting in the works of our own hands. And if we need mental healing, emotional healing, our tendency is to say, well, I will go to the psychologist or psychiatrist. They can prescribe me something to make me tranquil and to make things bearable. And again, I'm not saying that those things should not be uh, used by the people of God, but I'm saying that before we do that, and while we're doing that, if we're looking at those things and not seeing them as instruments in the hand of God, we have a we have the uh, problem of worshiping and seeking what we need at the hands of what men have done and not what God has done. So we have, uh, even in our day, a struggle with not trusting God, but trusting other gods and the works of our and other men's hands. Another place of deliverance that we seek is other men. Other men. In the same book of Isaiah, God tells Israel to cease from man. 
whose breath is in his nostrils. For when he is to, for wherein is he to be accounted of? Now, is it wrong for us to seek the counsel of men? Of course not. In a multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. But when we see our livelihood and our blessings and our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being as fundamentally tied up with a person, a man, or woman, we are in danger of having this same reliance on men whose breath is in their nostrils. Now, that's a problem for us. And the lady studied recently the uh, in their Bible study. I forgot exactly what the little phrase is, but it's, is it the if-onlys? We have a tendency to think in terms of the if-onlys. If only the people at my church were better. If only my spouse was better. If only I was married. If only I wasn't married. If only whatever. I didn't have children, or if I did have children, fill in the blanks. If only a certain man wasn't a certain way. Or if only a certain man that is a certain way was in a different position. Things would be better. The Lord says, don't trust in men. Don't see your prosperity and your progress as tied up in any man at all. Now, does the Lord use men? Of course. And I don't want you to understand that I... I'm saying that, you know, you shouldn't care who you marry or how many children you have or who your pastor is or where you go to church or anything like that. <clears throat> but I'm saying there is a, a really, really strong tendency for us to get our eyes off of the Lord and look at somebody as either the reason we're not a certain way or what is keeping us from progressing to be something that we would like to be. Isaiah 20, chapter 20, verse 5 says, And they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and of Egypt, their glory. Have you ever noticed in Isaiah and other places there are just repetitive prophecies of what God is going to do to all these nations around Israel. Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man, has some kind of statistic about uh, how that the Bible prophesies the future of every single nation within so many hundred miles of Israel. Why? I think one major reason is that Israel had such a tendency that when things got bad and difficult, they would look to this nation or to that nation 
whoever was in power. If Babylon was was rising in power and Egypt had some power and had chariots and horses, they would go down to Egypt. If they needed an alliance with Syria uh, or with Damascus of Syria to overcome Israel, their northern neighbor, they would go to make a pact with Ben-Hadad. If they needed somebody, if they needed help, they would go to some man and person or nation. So we have this idea of we'll look to our gods that we've made or we'll look to somebody to help us. And then there's always the insidious temptation to look to ourselves. Again in Isaiah chapter 47, verse 10, God accuses them, For thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. Thou hast said, None seeth me, Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am. That I am is in commas. It's surrounded by commas. I have said in my heart, I am. Does that ring a bell? God said to Moses, tell the children of Israel that I am that I am hath sent thee. Jesus said, I am he. And we have a tendency, dearly beloved, when we're pressed to see ourselves as the I am. You say in your heart, I am, and none else beside me. Who's going to help me if I don't help myself? I read uh, about a football player this past week. And he said something about if you know nobody else, if I don't if I don't say good things about myself, who is going to say good things about me? And we are so prone to self-reliance. We're taught that. We're taught that we ought to have um, a high degree of self-esteem, and that's good as far as it goes. But dearly beloved, our deliverance from our darkness and our weariness, individually, as families, and as a church, and beyond, will never, ever come from positive thinking. It'll never come from within you. You are not your own Savior. You have no strength, and you can do nothing. And all of these things tend to make us turn our attention away from God and become gods within themselves that rob us of the deliverance that God has for us. Now in Isaiah 50, 
the Lord does very gracious things. He, I'm going to list around nine things. I, I think it's nine. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down, one through nine perhaps. God encourages our trust in Him alone. How does He do it? Well, in Isaiah chapter 50, there are nine things that we're going to list. First of all, He calls our attention to the fact that He is the judge. Now, this is very elementary. But He wants us to think about this. Encouraging us, remember what verse 10 is going to say? He's going to say, you're weary, trust in the Lord. In chapter 50, verses 1 and 2, he reminds us, you need to remember that I am the judge. Chapter 50, verses 1 and 2, Thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? Whom I have put away? Of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, your iniquities have sold, you sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all, that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at thy rebuke, my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stinketh, because there is no water, and dieth for thirst. God calls attention to the fact that He is the one doing these things. And it's good for us to remember that as we seek to encourage ourselves to trust the Lord. Secondly, He reminds us, as we've already said, that it is our transgressions that have wearied us. In verse 2, because of your iniquities have you sold yourselves and for your transgressions as your mother put away. Now why is this important? Because of our perverse tendency to blame somebody else. And we're very adept at that. We say, well, I'm a Rogers. And my grandfather was a red-headed Irishman. He had a temper. And my dad had a temper. Now, I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm, this is part of this is ad-libbing here. But we say, I am the way I am because of my genes. Or we say, it's because of our environment. Or we say, something else. And God says, in order for you to trust me, and to know my deliverance, you need to accept the fact that the weariness that you're experiencing is a result of your own making. It's not who you are. It's not your genes. It's not your environment. It's not other people around you. But it's your own making. There's, there's freedom and liberty in that, by the way. Don't feel like this is a put-down that God's putting us down. This is a necessary thing for us to experience deliverance. Now, he doesn't want us to stop there. But he wants us to, to fundamentally agree with him that it's our sins that have separated us 
from him. Then he reminds us, thirdly, that he is able to deliver. Do you believe that God is able to deliver you from whatever situation you're in, whatever your weariness is, whatever your transgressions are, whatever ours are, do we believe that God is able to deliver us? Did the man with the child that had the demon believe? that God was able, Christ was able to deliver that child? That's the question. So God says, I want you to know that it's me. I drive the sea. I make the rivers of wilderness. The fish stinks. This could make for some uh, gory applications, couldn't it? Betty and I went walking on the boardwalk a couple nights ago and we were looking forward to it and uh, got out of a car and walked down the boardwalk a few feet and Betty said, ooh, I forgot the fishy smell. Fish that have died floating down the Coosa River, God takes credit for that. Or blame if we look at it that way. He's the one that dries up the pools of water. He's the one that causes the fish to die. The power of life is in his hands and deliverance. And he reminds us of that. Fourthly, God reminds us that he sends to us messengers to comfort us. Look at verse 4. The Lord hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning, and wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. God sends messengers to us with the message of comfort. This should encourage us. This should make us anticipate coming to the house of God to hear the message of God's comfort for us. One of the young brothers in the congregation this morning uh, was mentioning and asking, what is it to be in the special presence of God? How is, how is coming into the special presence of God different from being in the omnipresence of God as he is everywhere present? We believe through faith. Our faith apprehends that when we gather together to hear the word, to sing and pray and observe the Lord's Supper, we believe by faith that there is a special presence of God with us and that God will bless His words of comfort 
through his servants who have been sent to send messages of comfort to God's people. So now, now think about all these things that are going to add up here. We're, we're, we're looking at things that God does for us to encourage us to trust him. He calls attention to the fact that he is judge. He reminds us that it's our transgressions that have wearied us. He reminds us that he is able to deliver us. He sends servants to comfort us. And then he says, I will open your ears to hear this message of comfort. In verse 4, he wakeneth, the last part, he wakeneth morning by morning, he wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. Preacher and hearer alike are well reminded that the hearing ear is from the Lord. It is the Lord that opens Lydia's heart so that she can attend to the things that Paul said. And so God encourages us to trust Him because He says, I will give my people a waking, wakening ear, an open ear to hear as the learning. So that's uh, the fifth thing. Oh, the sixth thing is wonderful. The sixth thing is that to encourage us to trust God, he promises in prophetic language to send Christ. In verse 6 and verse 7, I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that pluck off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore will I not be confounded. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. Now in this passage, there is great difficulty on our part in separating the servants that God sends to comfort us from the servant that God would send who would give his back to the smiters, give his face to have his beard plucked out, set his face like flint to achieve salvation. There's a great difficulty in separating the servants from the servant, the servant who brings the message to us and the servant on whom the message depends. And I'm not saying that we can make a fine line of demarcation all through this passage. But I'm saying both are true. I'm saying God sends his servants to us, as we've already talked about, to give us the message of comfort, to encourage our faith. And what they talk about is the coming of the servant that God sent to make reconciliation between God and men. And so when we think about this, our faith and our trust in God is increased. Why did God send His Son to be born of a woman?
popular explanation is that God was lonely and he needed our fellowship. And God was up in heaven wringing his hands. How can I have a better time up here? How can my joy be increased? I guess the English word that comes to mind is poppycock. God was eternally satisfied in himself, in his fellowship, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he did not make us, and he did not create the world because he was lacking. He's already told us he doesn't do things because his treasuries are not full. We don't fully understand all we can say is, that the reason God sent Christ to give His back to the smiters, to give His back to the whip, to give His face to be plucked, the beard to be plucked, and His crown, His His head to be the crown of, to wear the crown of thorns, to hang on the cross, have His side pierced, have His arms and hands pierced with spikes, and to bear our sins. The reason he did that was for his glory and for his namesake. But the truth of the matter is, dearly beloved, in the fullness of time, Christ sent forth his Son to be born of a virgin. And so Isaiah is giving this, and God is giving this in this passage for us to be encouraged to trust the Lord. Paul used that 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 kind of reasoning, didn't he? He said, He that spared not his own son, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? If God did the greater, surely he'll do the lesser. It was greater for him to leave, for Christ to leave his glory in heaven Paul says in Philippians that Christ didn't think that equality with the Father was something to be grasped for at all. Why? Because he was equal with the Father. But he laid aside, he emptied himself of that glory and humbled himself and became like us, sinful flesh. in order that he could give us back to the smiters, in order that he could pay our price, our sin debt, the price of our sin debt, and the price of our redemption. Remind ourselves, let us remind ourselves of this. We're weary. We're discouraged. We're despondent. But remember that God sent Christ. That He intends to do great things for us through Christ. And let that be a motivation for us to trust our Lord. Then look at verse 8. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? 
Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. And Paul uses that same progression of thought. God is going to give us a declaration of justification in judgment. Um, Paul progresses through this same series of thoughts, and he says, Who is he that condemneth? When we come to judgment, who is going to stand up to condemn us? Is it Christ? No. Christ is the very one who died and gave himself for us. Well, who is it? Is it some enemy that can come and lay a charge to God's elect? No. There are no charges to lay to God's elect. And so God gives us through Isaiah, we're weary and we're discouraged and despondent and hopeless of the future. And God says, listen, I want you to trust me. And one of the elements of your trust is that you need to know and remember and assure yourself that the one that justifies me is near me. Who is going to contend with me? If there's someone that would dare contend with us, let's go to God. Let's go to God. Let's go to God as judge and let that person bring accusations against me. When we see that assurance in judgment, our trust, surely our trust in the Lord is encouraged. And then, eighthly, the Lord gives us hope for the future. In verse 9, Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that condemned me? Lo, they shall wax old as a garment, and moth shall eat them up. Okay. Uh, we have said a lot about our hope for the future um, in days past, and so we will just be very brief about this. But I want us to be very clear our trust in God depends in large measure to us believing that God has a glorious future for us. This language of uh, creation waxing old as a garment and moth eating the garment and there being a, uh, a garment of tattered holes and soiled spots and the, the putting off of that garment and putting on of a new garment is applied to the putting off of the old creation under Moses and the putting on of the new creation in Christ. All of the ramifications of that have not been worked out. But our trust and faith in God is increased when we recognize and tell ourselves 
God will bring these things to pass, just as he already has the other things that he has told us he would do. Now, the last thing is counterintuitive, and we'll stop here. Our trust in God is increased when we recognize that it is he that afflicts us. 